This week on All Things Apostolic, we're talking about demonic activity. So what better place to start than at the first occurrence in the Bible? Join me as we take a closer look at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read about the details of creation. The pinnacle of creation was God creating mankind in his own image. In chapter 1, verse 28, God blesses both Adam and Eve and tells them to be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. He also says in verse 29, and we can assume that this is directed to both Adam and Eve, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. Now there is some scholarly debate regarding the relationship of Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 1, and I think it's appropriate to view it, chapter 2, as an expanded account of the creation of Adam and Eve. In verse 9, we see that God has placed trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. There is also a tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before the woman was made, God cautioned Adam in verses 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Notice that these are the first words that God speaks to a human, and it's mostly positive, you may surely eat. There is only one restriction about what cannot be eaten, and God also told what would be the consequence of disobedience. So this establishes the principle that God expects his words to be obeyed. Through faith, Adam is expected to recognize God's word as truth and to obey it accordingly. Now Genesis 3 shifts to a new episode. There is so much to unpack here that we can't possibly cover all of the details. So I want to focus on the temptation of Eve. We're going to examine just the first six verses of chapter 3. Then, to be sure we're all on the same page, let me read the verses to you quickly. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, 
and he did eat. Genesis chapter 3 begins by introducing us to a serpent. Now, at first, we don't know whether the serpent is good or bad, but as the story unfolds, we see that the serpent is evil. He desires to corrupt God's good creation by tempting God's pinnacle of creation, human beings. The Bible does not identify the serpent as Satan here in Genesis 3, but there are other passages in the Bible that associate Satan with a serpent or snake-like creature, uh, especially Revelation 12.9 and Revelation 20 verse 2. And we know that demonic spirits can dwell in humans and also animals. Another potential connection between Satan and the serpent is the seraphim, that are mentioned in Isaiah 6. They are viewed as fiery angelic beings who worship God continually around his throne. And he uses the plural word seraphim, Isaiah does. The singular noun is saraph, which is a serpent. So, interesting connection. The Bible does not describe Satan explicitly as an angel, but Ezekiel 28 does tell us about Satan's fall, and there he is described by Ezekiel as a guardian cherub. And both seraphim and cherubim are considered the highest levels of angelic beings who are closest to God. But Satan wasn't satisfied with being beautiful and prominent. Isaiah 14 lets us know that he desired to be equal to or greater than God. He rebelled because he wanted to be God. And this is basically the same temptation that Satan uses against Eve. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11.3 that the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. So Satan may have approached Eve because Eve was more susceptible to his craftiness since God had spoken the commands directly to Adam. There is no indication in the text that she heard God's commands directly. So let's take a moment to examine the conversation and see the serpent's approach. And I'll share a few insights from Hebrew as well. Now, right from the beginning of verse 1, the Hebrew gives us some information that's helpful. In Hebrew, normal word order is the verb first, followed by the subject. So, for example, if I wanted to say, and God said, Hebrew would be, and said God, or and he said God. So the action of the verb precedes the object. But in this verse, we have the subject first. Now, that's not that uncommon for the subject of the sentence or the object to precede the verb. And the purpose is often to place emphasis on the subject or object, so it's emphatic. But it can also be done for other reasons, such as signaling a new section or introducing a new character. And in this chapter, I think that all of these are plausible reasons for fronting the subject before the verb. In verse 1, the serpent asks the woman a question. He's the first one to speak in chapter 3, and the way he speaks demonstrates how cunning he is. Remember that God told Adam, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. So there is a word lo, 
plus an imperfect verb that expresses a categorical negative, which is the same form that is used in the Ten Commandments. So when God is saying you shall not in the Ten Commandments, you shall not this, you shall not that, it's the same form that God uses when he's telling Adam to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So ultimately the serpent is asking, has God indeed said you shall not eat from the trees of the garden? Now remember that God gave a positive command in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, that of every tree of the garden, you may eat freely. And it's now being twisted into a negative statement. Even further, the serpent takes the original restrictive verb of you shall not eat, lo tohal, and he changes it to lo tohalu, which is a plural form. And then he pairs it with the affirmed provision of every tree of the garden. So in other words, he took the negative verb and he made it plural, you all shall not eat. And he also put it with the idea of all the trees. So he twists the truth and he lies to cause confusion about what God originally said. Now, Eve responds to the serpent in verse two, and she does attempt to correct the misinformation. She clarifies that she and Adam may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now, there are modal verbs in Hebrew that express possibility, permission, or obligation. And in verse 2, the Hebrew verb that she says is a modal form of permission. So Eve is clarifying that they have permission to eat of those trees. But we see a contrast in the next verse. Eve says that the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God has said they must not eat. And this form is used as a modal, this verb is a modal of obligation, meaning it's something that should be obeyed. So Eve, even in the way that she's presenting this, she's recognizing that of the trees that they can eat, there is permission in that. But in the tree that they're not supposed to eat from, there's an obligation to obey that restriction. But then Eve adds to God's instructions. She tells the serpent that God said, neither shall ye touch it lest you die. And I want to point out a couple of things about her first statement. Uh, first, we know that God did not say that Adam and Eve could not touch it. So Eve, did she add to the word of God? Possibly. Or perhaps Adam told her not to eat it and not to even touch it. So whether Eve added the words or, God, or Adam added them with good intentions, it's always dangerous, of course, for people to add to or adjust the Word of God. Second, besides adding the part about not touching it, Eve did not correctly restate God's words. In Genesis 2.17, God said, You shall surely die. Mot tamut. So there's an, uh, it's emphatic. When the verb is duplicated, it becomes, so we see the, the verb, um, Mut, to die, is actually presented twice in a row. And when that occurs, that means that that first one is being used to emphasize the second one. So the same verb is used back to back in different forms to create the emphasis, meaning surely or certainly. 
But when Eve repeats God's instructions, she just says, lest you die. She misses the emphasis. But the serpent doesn't. The serpent seizes this opportunity in which God's word is not firmly known, and he directly contradicts God. The serpent says, ye shall not surely die. And the way the serpent phrases it is exactly like how God said it, except that he makes the verb to die plural, and then he negates it. So look at the structure of the Hebrew. Normally, the negation lo, which means not, is positioned right next to the verb that it's going to negate. But in this case, and we're reading from right to left, we have the negation lo, meaning not, and then the cognate adverb mot, meaning surely or certainly, because again, it's the verb being repeated, and then that's followed by the verb tamutun, you will die. And again, it looks slightly different because it's a plural form of the verb. But by placing the negation where it's located, the serpent is directly, intentionally, and subtly negating the phrase of God's warning from back in Genesis 2.17 with more accurate language than Eve used. It is a direct contradiction to what God had said to Adam. In verse 5, the serpent tempts Eve that she can be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this has always been a trick of the devil to convince people that they can use their own human reasoning to make ethical judgments apart from God's principles. But right and wrong and good and evil are for God to define. In verse 6, we see another tactic of the devil. First, Eve sees that the tree is good for food. It appeals to the physical appetite. This is lust of the flesh. It's appealing to the physical person. Second, Eve sees that it is pleasant to the eyes. Lust of the eyes is when we see something and we desire to own it or possess it. Our eyes are one of the gates that give entrance to our internal selves. So we need to guard the gate of our eyes and not be tempted by the lust of the eyes. Third, she sees that the tree is to be desired to make one wise. This is the pride of life. It's wanting to exalt ourselves above where God has placed us. This was Satan's sin that caused him to be cast out of heaven. Interestingly, these three concepts of lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are not only found in the temptation of Eve in the garden, but they're also in the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, as described in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was tempted with bread for his hunger, which would be lust of the flesh, seeing all of the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eyes, and being dared to cast himself down to prove his identity, the pride of life. Jesus was tempted just like we all are, because the devil keeps using the same methods. But we have to follow Jesus's example and resist the devil by using the word of God. I want to make a few closing remarks. Um, first, be careful of temptations. Demonic forces will appeal to us through the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The devil's been using these same tactics from the very beginning. 
Instead of trying to be God, we need to focus on being a servant of God. Second, notice that Satan's approach is to attack or contradict the word of God, or at least to cast some doubt about God's word. So we need to know God's word so intimately that we can effectively use it with confidence and authority against demonic spirits. Third, we are in a cosmic battle. And I want to specifically address the women for a moment and say that women play a key role in this. I want to briefly jump to Genesis 3.15, and hopefully I'll have a chance to address this maybe more in a future discussion. But after the fall and the consequences of sinning, God gives an important promise in Genesis 3.15. Speaking to the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So Genesis 3.15 reveals a cosmic battle between Satan and the seed of the woman, which is Jesus Christ. And in this verse, God foretells the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, over Satan, sin, and death. But this points out that the devil particularly hates women because we have a special role in this cosmic battle. But there is also special protection for women. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 10 says that for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Verse 15 tells us that a woman's long, meaning uncut hair, is given her for a covering. In other words, a woman's uncut hair is a sign of authority on her. There is power on her head. It is a covering of protection. And also, when we're filled with the Holy Ghost, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So we don't need to be afraid or intimidated by any demonic forces because we have power within us and we also have protection on our head, specifically for women. I hope this study has been beneficial, and I look forward to seeing you the next time.